New Zealand in the 70s, when life seemed so much simpler. It was when our divorce laws were drawn up, called the Relationship Property Act, where everything was split 50-50 in a marriage separation. Nearly 50 years later, society is so different, yet we're still living under the same laws. Most of us don't get married these days. Those of us who do often have second or third marriages or de facto relationships. That makes divvying up the property when there's a separation fraught. You'd think more of us would take Kanye West's advice and get a prenup. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly, and today on The Detail, disputes over family homes, the batch, the farm, are getting more complicated. But our laws just aren't keeping up. I talked to two family lawyers about the current legislation and what needs to change. First, Tekawiti lawyer Chris Grenfell on Section 21 of the Act. Section 21 of the Act allows people to come to their own agreement about relationship property and how it's resolved on separation or on their death. So it it contracts out of the generally 50-50 division of relationship property under the Act if you don't have an agreement in place. And it's commonly known as the prenup. Yeah, prenup or a midnup or a contracting out agreement or a relationship property agreement. There's lots of names for it. Um, The the midnup being the idea that you can actually be in a relationship Um, when you enter into it rather than having to do it before you enter your relationship. And to be honest, most people have a mid-nup. They they have an agreement once they're in a de facto relationship. It's not that common to, uh, to do it before a relationship begins, although it does happen. This section 21, this was the one that was under review in about 2017, 2018? Exactly, yeah. The, the Law Commission reviewed it, um, made a whole raft of recommendations um, to the government, and um, as of yet, nothing has really come of it. So it's um, it's unfortunately, like most law, um, a little bit behind the times of society, and similar to provisions of when people die. That's laws from the 1940s and 50s govern um, the bulk of that. So judges have had to interpret the law you know, as best they can within those constraints. So it's, a, it's an area that does need um, the government to step in um, to, to keep it current, really. And it's just not been a high enough priority, I guess, with pandemics and so on that have interrupted that process. It seems like there was a, you know, a general across-the-board agreement that reforms were needed in this area. Nothing's happened. Yeah, absolutely. And it has created, you know, the the risk of unfairness. Um, I guess the way that the courts are dealing with that is to interpret the existing law in a way that reflects modern times. Um, And there was a case quite well known among um, relationship property lawyers, the Clayton uh, case, which dealt with the way that trusts are looked at. And that's an area that's continuing to evolve, the way that the courts will look at um, a family trust and how uh, that is used to prevent somebody accessing what would otherwise be um, an entitlement to relationship property. More from Chris later about how the Bank of Mum and Dad is being dragged into messy disputes, but let's get to Auckland family lawyer Jeremy Sutton. People are in two or three relationships during their lifetime rather than one. You have these polyamorous relationships. You have people having relationships for quite a short time. 
So the case law is, is trying to adapt to the situation now, but it struggles because it's still within that framework. One example might be something like, I have my own home and my new partner moves into that home. And then four years later, we separate. Now, that new partner is entitled to 50-50 of that home. That's what the law says, unless there's some ex- exception. So we we kind of assumed before, Sharon, that people were going to just have one relationship in their lifetime. And it's just, you know, it's just not the case anymore. No. Yeah, people see, you know, it's, it's greener on the other side. People live a lot longer now. So I always say, well, look, the law has got to change with the times. You've, you've, you've got to um, amend the law, you know, make it much easier for people. People don't get married. You know, most people that come to see me are in a de facto relationship. They don't see the need to get married anymore. And it's quite difficult to know, Sharon, if people are in a de facto relationship or not, because they may not be living in the same city all the time Mm. or at all. They may, you know, not be in the same house. And, you know, just because they're not in the same house all the time, it doesn't mean that they're not in a de facto relationship. I mean, people travel hugely now. Uh, so, so there are all these new factors that have come in. And, you know, of course, it is very hard to unravel them all. So if someone says they're in a de facto relationship, whether they're living with that person or not, are they entitled under the law to 50% of the property if the couple split, the qualifying amount, if you like, is three years. So, so to be in a qualifying relationship, they've got to be in a de facto relationship for three three years. But the way de facto relationship is defined is not just whether they've had a sexual relationship or been living together, but things like do family and friends know that they're in a financial relationship? Is their financial independence or not do they spend christmas t- together do they spend birthdays together is it an exclusive relationship so there are all these factors that are now taken into account and of course well the way we are now it's quite common for people to be in a relationship but one person say well look i'm going to live on waiheke island and i'm going to um, work from there and then we'll catch up with each other three or four nights a week is that a qualifying de facto relationship? So it kind of it makes it harder for the lawyers and harder for the judges and harder for the clients because we we don't have any further guidance now in terms of the law than we had back in 1976 because Parliament has decided it's not necessary to change the law. So that then brings me to to say, well. It's uncertain we're in a relationship or not, perhaps, but let's have a contracting out agreement. Let's have a prenuptial agreement because just in case we are in a de facto relationship, I don't want you to get half my property. So I think that's become more popular for people because as they can see the uncertainty in the law, they want to be covered as such. So Is it becoming more popular, though? Because I think I read somewhere that maybe... Only 10% of the population actually have 
a prenup agreement? I think, Sharon, it's less than that. I think the, the stats were 6 or 7%. So it's still not hugely popular. It, it's probably most popular in two ways. Firstly, when the couple are perhaps buying their, their first house and um, one party is contributing all or most of that de- deposit, because once you're in the, in a relationship, it's a pretty difficult conversation. You know? Well, I want to print up an agreement. Yeah. It's like, well, don't you trust me? You know. So that's one aspect. And then the second one is where people are in second or third relationships and their silver spooners or more. So they're in their 50s or 60s. And they're wanting to make sure that perhaps um, you know most of their wealth is given to their children rather than their new partner, or a lot of their wealth is given to their children. And that's kind of an easier one to sell, but I think it's done mainly when they're buying that first house. Or, of course, you know, after our clients have gone through the separation, gone through the divorce, they're, they're saying, look, I've got a new partner. Can I have one now? Mm. Like, I know I stuffed up the first time and I should have had some sort of agreement. I'm going to make sure I'm protected this, the second time. That brings us to the bank of mum and dad. Consumer NZ's recent survey found that parents are now New Zealand's fifth biggest lender, worth a whopping $22.6 billion a year. Chris Greenfell again. Well, there's lots of different ways that this can go and all sorts of things that can go wrong because the parents might loan the money to one of the children and they might document that or they might not. They might gift it to one of the children. Um, because the bank might say, well, if it's loaned, the equity isn't sufficient. So that can create a risk of dispute between the parent and child or parents and, and th- that child. And the um, the other argument is the parents might be co-purchasing. They might be um, putting money in and becoming a, an owner, perhaps not on the, the legal title to the property, but they might feel that they have some ownership interest in the property. Um, now, if it's a gift, then the money's gone to the child and it, and it stays with the child. If it's a loan, the parents can call that back potentially with interest on that money. And if it's gone in as a co-ownership situation, the parents could then share in, in the equity in the property and the increased value of the property on sale. And unfortunately, when that's not documented or understood well between the sort of three competing interests, that's when it can get very messy when a relationship sours either between the parents and the child or between the couple, the, the, the child and their partner. So the important thing here is to make sure that you get a legal agreement. It is, and be really clear about what that is in terms of not a situation where you tell the bank one thing and then tell the child something different, and then the paperwork might say a, a third different way. You have to be quite clear about the risks of you know loans and gifts and property ownership together. Um, and each of those have different pitfalls and risks. So really understanding what your appetite for risk um, and what you're worried about and trying to protect is, is very important. And then absolutely making sure it's documented as clearly as it possibly can be. Are people naive about this? I think a lot of the time they don't think ahead to what could go wrong. Um, that's generally lawyers' jobs you know, to do and people don't like to hear what could go wrong. And you might be protecting for, for one thing that you think is likely, um, but another thing happens. You know, someone dies or there's a relationship fallout between, you know, the parent and child. You know, that type of thing might not be anticipated at the time it's entered into. So there's, an, I guess, an element of, um, you know, um, hoping for the best but not be preparing for the worst. 
How much of your work now is in dealing with Section 21? Um, a significant amount. It's a very common uh, thing to have now, especially you know, as we talked about with mum and dad lending money. Often mum and dad, um, who may have been burnt once before in a relationship breakup, are saying, well, I don't want my child to be in that situation. I don't want my hard-earned money you know, um, or hard-fought money if it's a, a relationship breakup situation being lost um, in, a, in a future Break up, so it's now becoming yeah very common. So you know a significant portion of the relationship property work we do is in that um, you know contracting out section twenty one agreement space. So the bank of mum and dad and and all those. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up, Sharon. Why it's got much much harder in the last year or two, of course, is that people don't have the income to buy a house. You know houses are so expensive relative to incomes in this country. So the only way to do that is to get a third party, a friend, the parents, the uncle, someone else to help you. And they want a ring fence. They want to protect that initial sum that goes in. And for a lot of overseas people that come here, they're not aware of the New Zealand legal system. They don't have written agreements about, you know, loans and deeds of acknowledgement of debt and, and prenups because they're not aware of that. And so, you know, people have have come from a number of sort of non-English speaking countries. You know, they've found it really troublesome, really difficult because they haven't protected their their assets and their money as much as they might because they haven't known what our actual system is like. And and that's, you know, a source of a lot of work for lawyers because people will say, well, I loaned this money to my child and, and his partner but often it's it's not in writing. So you just need to, you know, untangle and work, th- work through that. So you're seeing a lot more of these kind of cases? I'm seeing more, but it, but it has been going on for some years. But these cases, you know, often go right the way through the courts because if one party wants 150000 back and, and the other party says, says no, it's now relationship property, it's very hard to mediate on that. You know, it's very hard to go halfway because people are pretty clear as to what their respective positions are. And they, they may well have spent, you know, $50,000 in legal fees already or $20,000 in legal fees already. Again, it's, it's difficult and you just have to work through it. And hopefully um, things will become simpler for people in that at the start of the dispute, both parties will say, look, we've already spent $5,000 on lawyers each. Let's go to mediation now. And even if it's not perfect for both, it's a compromise and they can move on. So you're skirting around the old laws by getting your prenup, your midnup, your contracting out agreement, whatever you want to call it. But wait, it's not forever. The difficulty, of course, is that people might do that um, when they're in their 20s or 30s or 40s. Um, 20 years later, it might not reflect what they really want to have happen. Um, there might have been children that have stopped one of the, the, the couple working. Uh, there might have been health issues that have, again, stopped someone working or be able to uh, maintain their asset base. And suddenly, it's very lopsided, the position, if there was a death or separation. And that's where... If a court is satisfied that the agreement, that Section 21 agreement, has become seriously unjust, the court can just rip it up. There's no 
ability for the court to tinker with the agreement. It's either the agreement's in effect or it's ripped up. And that's something that the Law Commission recommended changes so that the courts can tinker with it so that it's fair at the you know the point where it's been looked at rather than having the choice, a binary choice of rip it up or keep it. And are people aware of that, that, that it can be ripped up? I think people are because when... When they get an agreement, the the lawyer explains to them, you know, hopefully if they're doing their job properly, what the meaning of the agreement is and you know what the effect of it is. They also will talk about what might happen that could create that unfairness, and that's where, um, as lawyers, we try to you know look into a crystal ball and think what might happen in the future here that could could make this agreement become unfair. And ways of dealing with that are, for example, you can have a review provision in the agreement and say, well, okay, in five years' time, or if we have any children, we, we're going to agree to come back and look at this agreement, right through to even saying, if those things happen, if one of us stops working because we're raising children, then we will agree that this agreement is, is ripped up, that is of no effect anymore. So it's a way of building in your own fairness into the agreement. And and that seems really straightforward, but it's it's a really tricky area, isn't it, for families? It's really oh, it's, it's so yeah. sensitive. It, it is sensitive, and yeah, and, and you often have people who just are, are too afraid to to tell people what they what they you know want to do and and, and why they've done it, um, and that can cause massive hurt. And and of course, when people are hurt, they um, may react by um, doing all sorts of things, including commencing litigation, sometimes just for the principle of it. And that can be um, terrifying for lawyers to hear because um, essentially you, you have a client that is then saying that they um, are willing to set aside the economic reality of it to make a point. And that can be um, you know, very difficult for everybody involved. So back to the old 70s law and what needs to change. For a start, Jeremy says, children need more attention. Giving greater priority to the, the children's best interests in relationship property, including greater rights for the primary caregiver and the children to occupy the family home following separation. It's ensuring some stability from the children's point of view when their parents separate that they'll continue to be in the same home and that they'll be able to attend the same school. That's one thing. There are 10 recommendations that were made by the Law Commission, but the other one is in relation to giving the courts greater powers to divide trust property. And this is a real issue because most of the people that come to us have at least one trust. And trusts are not supposed to be dealt with in terms of relationship property, they're seen as relationship property, but it gets very mucky and, and very expensive. What one is looking for here is for simplicity, is looking for people to be able to deal with their separation more easily emotionally and also on a time basis. So, Sharon, one of the things I'm in favour of is some sort of compulsory mediation shortly after separation to try and work things out. Because as you probably know, there are still long delays in the court system since COVID, even though people have put a lot of resources into it. So an average sort of case takes about 14 months to resolve if it goes through through the courts. And if it goes the full way through the courts, it, it, it'll take between two and three years. That's a long time to be waiting to sort out stuff that's, that can be so acrimonious. Yeah, and of course it's 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 tough for the parties, but it's hardest for the children because the children get 
drawn into this dispute as well. They they hear what's going on, and it's detrimental to their development. It's detrimental to their mental health. Yeah, I I just think there there should be some more direction to try and you know force people to work thing things out because what tends to happen is the longer the dispute goes on, the more is spent in legal fees, the more people feel invested and they're not willing to com- compromise. Yeah, so so if people can relatively early on in the process say, look, this is what I want, and talk through it, the conflict tends to be reduced. And in parenting cases, that's you know what often tends to happen. You you have something called FDR or family disputes resolution, where people can go with a mediator, and hopefully sort it out with relative ease. If it's com- compulsory, it will mean that all the resources are being used at the front end at the start rather than being used at the end. You might start off like, you know, thinking that you can get through this without too much um, anger or bitterness, but it doesn't really take much for things to fall apart. There's so much passion involved when we're talking about property or family heirlooms, even stuff that's not that's not valuable, but it's precious to people. Yeah, that's true. And the longer it goes on post-separation, then the more the expenses post-separation that they try to recover from each other. And an example would be, say, where one person lives in the in the home with the children after separation or, or lives on their own and the other party lives with the kids. There's something called occupational rent. And so how much occupational rent is payable? And that's not a, a a fixed amount. You know, it depends on what the circumstances are. And again, I just come back to the fact that, you know, people want certainty most of the time. They want a clean break. They want the ability to either enter into a new relationship or just, you know, feel that they're not going to be getting another email, you know, every second day or every third day from the lawyer about what's, go- what's going on. And most of these things are capable of being resolved. But of course, uh, Sharon, you know, people do like property in this country. You know, most people have an interest in a family home. A lot of people have a holiday home. Uh, most people have KiwiSaver. So, you know, it's difficult. And um, there, there just needs to be some leadership on this issue. And other countries like Australia, for example, they are really big on mediation. And I'm sure other countries in the world are as well, because they can see the benefits of getting things resolved early on. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Phil Benge. Alexia Russell and Bonnie Harrison are our producers. Thanks to Chris Greenfell and Jeremy Sutton. Kakite. Ka